Welcome to Sliding Doors, the podcast that delves into the decisions and moments that shape our lives. I am Jenny Becker, and throughout my life, career and relationships, I've always been fascinated with the notion that everything happens for a reason, alongside my love for the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. Have you ever really thought about those moments that shaped your life? Those decisions that could have gone either way in the opportunities presented to you? What if you had taken that job? or told that person in high school how much you liked them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. My guest this episode is Dr. Rupi Orjula. Dr. Rupi is an NHS GP working in emergency medicine and completing a master's in nutritional medicine and is best known as the founder of The Doctor's Kitchen. Often seen on our screens on shows such as This Morning and Saturday Kitchen, Rupi's aim is to inspire and educate everyone about the beauty of food and the medicinal effects of eating well. He creates healthy and delicious recipes using carefully selected ingredients, explaining the clinical research behind them and shares them across his media platforms. Rupi is a Sunday Times bestselling author with three cookbooks under his belt, a successful podcaster and a TEDx speaker. He's also the founding director of The Culinary Medicine, a non-profit which aims to teach doctors and medical students the foundations of nutrition. He's just announced his new Channel 4 TV series with the amazing Prudith, Cook Clever and Waste Less, airing this spring, helping to fulfil his big aspirations to bring his concept to the profession globally. I cannot wait to delve into his moments as he's really an example and inspiration that everyone has their own path to follow and can make their passion into a career. So welcome to the brilliant Dr. Rupi. Hello. <laughs> yeah. It's always strange hearing my bio just before yeah. we start talking. It's like, oh God, I, I always get like a little bit 
little bit embarrassed. I don't no, know. <laughs> red in the face. <laughs> it's really hard, but it, it's so good to sometimes hear back everything that you have achieved. And I mean, from reading all of that, you are so busy. I mean, new books, you've got podcasts, TV shows. How is life going for you at the moment? Uh, it's definitely a juggling act, I would say. Um, a really enjoyable juggling act. Um, with the books and the podcast and all that kind of stuff, it's kind of something I can can keep in my stride and I can definitely partition my my work life, my clinical duties with all that kind of stuff. The one thing I struggle with now even more uh, than ever is um, the cadence of social media. Yeah. So oh it's gosh. the constant sort of pressure to post and come up with something interesting to say and you know I've actually become a lot I don't know about yourself but I've come become a lot more compassionate with myself about not having to always have something to say about something and just totally relax into it yeah yeah and you because you have to be authentic that's the way that people really relate to you but yeah it's mm. a it's a tough game it's you know you've got to you've got to plan your content you've got to post every day and there's algorithms it's all ridiculous um so how's the past year been for you? Um, I mean, we've spoken about everything that you've been doing, but have you had to like work alongside all of your <laughs> passion projects? <laughs> yeah, so when uh, everything went um, into lockdown, I was, I, I regard myself as a, a lucky one because I got to still go to work, right? Mm -hmm. And my partner was was working at home you know she's used to traveling for work she works in the city that commute you know the things that you really take for granted where you have pockets of time where you interact with other people as well as you know listening to a podcast on the commute all that kind of stuff and was suddenly confined to our, our flat in central yeah. london um whereas i got to go out be clapped for every thursday work in accident emergency and help out my colleagues in ITU as well, um, as well as have those interactions socially, as mm -hmm. well as, you know, for, for, for work reasons. So I actually regard myself as one of the, the lucky people who got to do something and feel like they were doing something um, during that time when, when everyone was, was locked up. Uh, the struggle was keeping up with everything else at the yeah. same time. So we did a whole series on um, COVID uh, on the podcast. I interviewed a whole bunch of colleagues um, that were working on the front line. So uh, a neurosurgeon um, in Chicago, uh, a friend of mine who is an anaesthetist who does a lot of work with chronic pain. Um, and we, we were actually wanted wanted to have a conversation about CBD because he's one of yeah. the only registered practitioners of CBD. But but he was redeployed to ITU, so we had a chat about that. Um, and then I did a, a solo episode about what COVID is. And I think it yeah. still stands to reason that today, you know, what um, what COVID is and, and, and why we needed to be very... Um, very pragmatic about mm -hmm. how we treated it um back then and even today so so yeah no it was it was tough and I was writing a third book at the same time as well so. yeah you know just, just casually <laughs> writing a book alongside but it's interesting you say that because um we were speaking before my sister's um a trainee GP about to qualify and she got redeployed into ICU and I was like your wife like I I live on my own though um and all of a sudden after having every day being social 
I was at home every day by myself and she used to always say that actually the one thing that got her through was that she went to work every day and it was horrendous and horrible and but she got to experience it with her colleagues and see them and go through it with them and have that interaction every day which really did like help her get through everything um so it's such a good point um so we my sister being a doctor gets hounded daily by our family our friends <sighs> or she'll also say by me um <laughs> asking her every single question you can think of of all their medical problems um so i wanted to ask for you what's the one question maybe specifically around kind of like the importance of food or whatever that you always get asked by people Oh, I get asked loads of different questions. So I've got like a series of like FAQs. Um, one of them, well, it, it's almost like the flavor of the month. So right now it's about keto and fasting because they're mm -hmm. sort of popular terms in the in the media and the vernacular around why it's good for us and all that kind of stuff. And the other the other obvious one is, you know, whether people should go vegan or vegetarian. Yeah. Um, and the, the common sort of sidebar questions to that as well, like, where do you get your protein from? Um, are you going to be nutrient deficient? What should you supplement with? Those are sort of the, the common themes that, that come out. Um, and, and everything weird and wonderful in between. You know, I, I got asked about if there was something that you could eat for appendicitis the other day. And I was like, if you've got appendicitis, you need to go to A&E. Like, you don't <laughs> need to be thinking out. about, yeah, you don't need to be thinking about your fiber intake. Like I was literally asked that quite, I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, th there's a really fine balance that I, I hope I tread well, where mm -hmm. I give the appropriate information about how people can help themselves. But simultaneously i also want to emphasize the point that food and nutrition and lifestyle are just clinical tools in the toolbox alongside all the other tools that are just as effective like drugs and interventions and talking therapy and sleep and you know all, all the other things that we need to make sure people are aware of yeah and I've done an event with you before and I mean w you got asked so many questions by people <laughs> and I think it's because you know you you also do what you do through personal experience so you talk about you know how it's helped you and I think people really resonate with that um and I think they really do as you say I guess veganism is like a massive topic but also so what's your diet specifically then are you vegan are you do you eat chocolate uh, like uh, good, <laughs> bad <laughs> I definitely eat chocolate for sure like like I'm a chocolate fiend, but uh, I'm probably um, one of those really annoying people that loves dark chocolate. Like anything oh. above 85%, I love it. Not 100%, but 85% okay. is like my sweet spot. Um, and that's that's been built over time. You know, you go to 60 and then 70 and 75. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not uh, exclusively plant-based, but I'm pretty pretty much as plant-based as you can go it's just one of those things when you know how it's being produced you can't eat it so totally. any animal products that i consume have to be like really ethically sourced but i'll be honest with you um over the last year since i got a puppy i've really begun to um think about i've, I've began to think about the the other aspect of the morality of eating animals um mm -hmm. i actually had jonathan saffron fur on my podcast who wrote the really influential book eating animals and if anyone hasn't read that as a meat eater as an omnivore yeah. um I, I would definitely read it it's obviously got a vegan slant but um it, it really does paint the picture of exactly 
the sacrifices that we have to make mor morally to consume animals. And I think everyone needs to be aware of that and then make a conscious choice. I still eat animals. I yeah. still eat fish. But uh, my, my diet is around 85, 90% plant-based. Um, yeah. I can't even think of the last time I actually ate meat if i'm thinking about it maybe like two weeks ago yeah <laughs> but also that's really good because you're not you know i think a lot of people find it very hard to go from one extreme to the other and you're just kind of saying it's not about the like no this no meat but it's it's yeah. the conscious decisions that we can make i mean i'm like really i mean i kept going to the duck pond near where i live and was like i've got to stop eating duck like these ducks <laughs> are too cute like i can't and but it is it's it's when you really start thinking about it it kind of changes your perception of of what we're doing and what we're eating um so i think for this podcast what i think is going to be quite interesting is i think you usually go on people's podcasts and they just want to ask your advice about stuff but actually today we're going to talk a lot about you your journey where you came from which i'm so excited about and i think your moments specifically i think are really important because a lot of people probably look up to what you do they definitely do and you know your medical journey wasn't perfect you had a lot of bumps mm. along the road but you've still been a success so do you believe in the notion that everything happens for a reason and fate? And obviously you've got to work really hard to be a doctor. It can't just happen like that. Mm. But, you know, you can't do it without these sliding door moments that you have. So what's your kind of beliefs around all of that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So me and a group of my friends that I met um, in the first year of medical school, we're still really, really tight, even though we're deployed in different areas. One of my mates dropped out of medicine. Another one um, dropped out further along in his career to follow his tech uh, entrepreneurship ambitions. And we discussed the topic of fate mm -hmm. and um, whether everything happens for a reason, whether your destiny is predetermined or not. And it, it makes a really good conversation, but I can't really put my finger on what my beliefs are. But what I've decided to do is sort of um, surrender and go go with the flow. Yeah. So um, I had a chat with a, an, another colleague of mine um, about, uh, about this concept of destiny. And he was like, rather than trying to figure out whether everything is predetermined or not, if you surrender to the universe, you you become less stressed. And yeah. I think the goal of, of me and my life right now is to become uh, less stressed as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And actually letting go of the idea as to whether things happen for a reason or not, it is, is fine for me. And what I found by practicing that is um, I'm a lot happier yeah. and things sort of happen. So I, I'm a really big fan of action boarding. I don't know if you've heard of this concept. It's kind of like visual, visualizing and, 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 um, uh, and, and writing down things and literally taking stickers from magazines and, and putting them onto a big A1 and then really thinking about manifesting your future. Oh yeah, good vision uh, board. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was taught by a friend of mine, Dr. Tara, um, about how you should you should call it your your action board because a vision board sounds like you're just dreaming an action board sounds like you're Gonna literally do doing something exactly yeah so uh, i i put all these things on on the board and 
I'm literally ticking things off oh, without really thinking about it. And it really, it gives me tingles thinking about it, but I'm literally yeah. ticking things off. And, and then, you know, w- whether things are in fate or whether it's predetermined or all that, it kind of doesn't matter to me anymore. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, well, I'm going to go with the flow. And if things happen, things happen. If things don't, things don't. But the, the, the more I surrender, the more things happen. But you really have to commit to that. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of a fluffy answer to the question, but I, I, I'm, I'm leaning more towards the wider uh, process of going with the flow. No, it's it's not fluffy at all. It's actually a really great way of thinking of it. It's a kind of almost like, you know, you're not going to win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. You know, mm. yes, we can manifest, but actually I think your notion and your beliefs actually are really clever because it we're in control of a lot more than we realize and mm. sometimes it's not just waiting for things to happen as you say like I love action um rather than vision it's actually such a better way of thinking of it but you're right like we can make so much happen and sometimes it's just about going with the flow yeah and I think you know this year for a lot of people who realized how many freedoms that we do have how much we've taken for granted, the very fact that we can breathe, we are conscious, I'm standing, I've got four limbs, you know, all these different things that we take for granted. And that's why I think gratitude is the gateway drug for being more present and actually allowing you to think about what you want to manifest because you have we're so lucky we, mm-hmm. we literally have already run won the lottery ticket it's, it's an analogy that a lot of people use but when you recognize that you're like oh wow like <laughs> every moment is something to be celebrated whether it's predetermined or not yeah you're totally right and your moments are really great because I think you've really shown how you've gone with the flow when things may not have gone the way you want it to, but ultimately have led, led you to where you are today. So let's get on to the first one. So flunking all of your medical school exams and <laughs> failing to pass my interviews. This is quite a big one. So I guess before I talk specifically about this moment, was the dream always to be a doctor? Are you from a family of doctors? Have you just always loved medicine? Yeah, so it's um, I'm I'm the first doc in um, both of my families. Oh, great! Um, so from my mum and my dad, and neither of them wanted me to go into medicine, which is very unusual for an Indian family. Yeah. Um, very unusual, and the reason why is because they were both in business in their respective um, careers. My dad started his own business. My mum since started loads of businesses, but she was in investment banking and. She was one of the early people in the 80s to um, look at all the different opportunities in the Middle East and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they knew how difficult uh, and grueling medicine was. Uh, aside from the status and the glitz and all that kind of stuff, they knew it was, it was a tough profession. Mm-hmm. And they were lucky enough to have some some really good friends who gave me some work experience actually when I was 16. But ever since, um, so my mum was ill with uh, anaphylaxis of unknown origin when I was around 11. And I had to uh, give her a, a dummy EpiPen um, okay. a, as, a, as a, like an 11, 12 year old. I wow. had to literally click it in. And I remember like I was so nervous about it and stuff. But that I think was the, the seed that was planted in my head about wanting to help people understand the human body, 
um, you know, as it was affecting someone in my family, I think that's kind of why I was drawn more to science and the whole art and the altruistic um, process of, of, of medicine. Uh, and so that's kind of where I made my decision to, to go into medicine against the sort of advice of, of my parents. Obviously now they're like, you know, very grateful. I, love it. I, I went <laughs> yeah. into it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that I enjoy it and all the rest of it. Um, but that, that was my, that was sort of the, the, the reasoning as to why I went yeah. into medicine. Which is actually really great because as you say, you know, not everybody, but it, it's nice to know that there was, it was your passion and it wasn't someone else's vision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the onus of that and being, being in control of where I wanted to go, I think was, was quite liberating as well. But the process of getting to medical school was very hard. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so explain like when you say you flunked all your medical school exams, which exams were these? How did, when and how did you fail them? Yeah. So, so, so now they have um, something called a BMAT, I believe. Um, and it's where you have to do additional exams in, on top of your A-levels so that they can filter out people who are worthy candidates of, of yeah. medicine. And if that was me back in 2000, I probably wouldn't have passed. But um, w w the, the, so two things. So um, I flunked all my uh, medical exams in year one when I was in medicine. Yeah. I, I've passed them all since then, just for any, in case anyone's <laughs> wondering. Um, and, uh, but, but before I went into medicine, so before I even got a place, I flunked all my medical school interviews. So as a 17-year-old, um, I got uh, interview offers from UCL, Oxford, King's, and I went to all those interviews, and I, I don't know what it was, whether I was overconfident, whether I hadn't prepared enough. I thought I'd prepared a lot, actually. Um, neither of those, none of those wanted to give me a place. Really? And Imperial College, which is one of the best medical schools, um, was the only one to give me an interview with an with an acceptance but that was three months after all the others had flunked so for that long period it was like really late in march i had i literally had no place to go after my yeah. a levels i had no university i had no backup plan i was like god i'm gonna have to go on like a gap year or something where am i gonna go like you know I, I was of that sort of academic nature that i needed to know the next step so that for me was a really troubling period of my my early educational career because I, I literally had no next steps and yeah. I didn't know where to go where did you where did you want to go like what where which from you said you're like Oxford and all that where did you actually want to go to uni I actually wanted to go to King's did you yeah <laughs> and the only reason why is because I had a friend of mine that went to King's and he was a year above me and he was like yeah King's is the best and yada 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 but you know what the best thing that happened to me was going to Imperial. Imperial was mm -hmm. last on my list of options. Same so happened to me with my university. Really? I, I went to my last choice and it turned out to be the best decision. The best decision. And I'm so grateful that happened because obviously, you know, w with the benefit of hindsight, you see it's a, a, a very esteemed institution. I obviously met my friends. That, that would have happened anywhere I, I went. I'm a, I'm a great believer in that. You know, you, you make your fortune and you... you you will have a good time as long as you surrender to the, you know, uh, being positive about wherever you are in that moment. But um, 
Yeah, like I would have wanted to go to King's and then UCL and then Oxford and then Imperial. And so flunking all those <laughs> interviews, I was really like, oh God, do I even want to go to Imperial? Are they going to give me an acceptance and all that kind of stuff? And it, it sounds very privileged now because obviously with what's going on and people have no idea wh where they're going to go, university, how the A-level is going to be counted, um, uh, you know, it's, it's much less of an issue. But back then for me, it was, yeah, it was huge. Yeah, and do you think maybe you were, because the pre not the pressure was off, but because Imperial wasn't a first choice, do you think maybe you did relax a bit more in the interview and were just maybe a bit more yourself that led you to get in? I think so. You know what, it's a really good point. I haven't really reflected on that interview as much, um, but I remember walking in, there were five people across the desk, uh, a student in the year three, three professors and then someone else from from HR and they all ask questions and to be a fly on the wall you know it would have looked like quite a tense situation mm -hmm. but for me it was kind of like well this is last chance saloon I'm not 100% on going here anyway so I'm just going to relax into it mm -hmm. I definitely prepared and I had a um a friend of my parents who was a consultant ENT surgeon he he gave me some one-on-one -on -one, um training for like a couple of months prior to that so I owe a lot to him because I, I walked in there with a lot more confidence yeah about how the NHS system actually worked which I think was quite unique for a lot of the students who are very um to use a word bookish who are quite academic Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the bigger picture, and I think they really liked that. Yeah. And one of the one of the um, uh, intercalated BSCs that Imperial do is uh, is management, healthcare, mm -hmm. and management, which is which is one of the only places that does that in in Europe, let alone in the UK. So um, I think they really enjoy. It. And and yeah, I, I I remember getting that acceptance letter. It was very high offer. I had to get three A's, I think it was. Um, but yeah, like uh, it was so such a sigh of relief because yeah. I don't know what I would have done. And had I gone on a gap year, let's say, uh, and I went traveling or I did some work, who knows? I might not even be in medicine. Ended up in medicine. Yeah, I might have might have done something completely different. Totally. Marine biologist. And yeah, you never know. <laughs> and that's the thing. And I think, you know, me thinking, you know, about the whole fate thing, you know, if you think about it, maybe those three interviews that you did fail, you failed for a reason so that you got you into where you did and, you know, all those things. And I mean, as you say, you, is there anything, I mean, we'll probably go on to this a bit more, but in terms of going to Imperial, like is, I mean, I, as I said, I got into my last choice of uni and I'm still best friends with like someone on my course today. I can't imagine of not meeting her. Are there mm. like, is there anything specific to your experience there that you're like, I cannot believe that if I hadn't have gone here, I wouldn't have met this person or done this thing or anything like that? Oh, massively. I have a collection of six years of memories that had I not gone to Imperial, I would never have had. Like the friends that I met on my first day I still like are uh, super super close with yeah. like one of my one of my best best friends um, who now lives in Essex who flunked uh, medicine twice and then ended up going his sliding door moment he he flunked medicine twice so you can imagine what what his family <laughs> was saying yeah. to him when uh, when he he, uh, he flunked twice but then he went into um, another uh, uh, science degree at the same uh, 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 imperial as well and then went into finance and now he's in forex and now he's like killing it he's like doing so so well super successful investing in a whole bunch of other companies and had he not flunked 
he wouldn't have got into the career that he's in right now. And he's thriving, massively yeah. thriving. And then all the other experiences that I've had, you know, um, in my first year of uni, uh, me and two of my other close friends that I still, um, still very close with now, we sneaked in to the set of Question Time. Oh when it was God. at Imperial College. Yeah, yeah, I know. I and mean, it was really funny because um, we, got, we got turned away at the door uh, because it was like a ticketed event or something like that. And everyone yeah. there was like in their suits and stuff. And we would just like finish uh, lectures. And so we were walking around like hoodies. And then I, I knew that there was a back door to the Great Hall. So I went around the corner and then we just walked in. And then we were sat, literally stood out like a sore thumb in the middle of the TV because we were the only three students wearing hoodies. (laughs) Everyone else was wearing suits Suits and and lovely blouses and dresses and all that kind of stuff because they knew they were going to be on TV. Um, And yeah, it was just so random. So, you know, there's there's tons of things that, you know, I'm so glad it happened. And, And Imperial for me and going to that university was just the catalyst for so many relationships and and experiences are yeah yeah. oh it's such a great message it's such a brilliant moment and actually you've made me think a bit about when I first moved to London so I was looking for a job I did a degree in fashion and business and really wanted to move to London and I had an interview at Kurt Geiger for a merchandiser and I had to do a maths test and then I had an interview and I quite like maths loved it and was quite good at maths so got the test literally couldn't do it was the the hardest thing I've ever like I just I couldn't do it like I was in there I was for half an hour half an hour was over I was like I've I've failed this so I may as well just go into the interview and just be myself went into the interview had a great chat with the woman literally was walking to the train after my interview got a call to say that they wanted to offer me the job and I was like huh and probably a couple of months later when I was in the job, uh, my then boss was like, oh, I didn't even mark your maths exam because we just <laughs> liked you so much. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, and again, it's just those moments that you think like, you know, when you relax and when you're the pressure's taken off sometimes is when like the best things happen. Definitely. I'm such a big believer in that. And that's why, um, and I know this sounds a bit like wellness, um, wellness wankery, but I meditate in the mornings because it puts me in a really, really relaxed tone. Mm-hmm. And the vibration, the energy that you are, are, are operating at is in a, a certain spectrum that allows you to do your best work. You have to be relaxed. Mm-hmm. And I know it's, it's very easy to say, you know, don't be stressed, whatever. But the process of meditation is such an important tool to put you in that relaxed state such that you thrive and you operate your best. And that is a great example of how, you know, you took the pressure off you because you didn't think anything was going to happen. So you were just yourself. And I think, you know, that that's such an important message. Totally go with the flow, as you say. Yeah. Um- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. 
<laughs> so going on to your second moment. So there's loads of things here that um, resonate with me as well. But so you didn't get into London GP training, mm. um, which led you to go to Brighton and then to Australia. So I said before, my sister is a trainee GP and I've been through that whole process with her. It's a nightmare. Um, you know, you want to go somewhere. It's you, you, you get scored, you get ranked. Some people are placed in mm. like the Isle of Man that I know. Do you want to explain a bit what happened? So you was London like the only place you wanted to train as a GP and kind of like what happened when you didn't get in? Yeah so my my whole life is very London centric right so I grew up in East London we moved out to Essex when I was in secondary school I went to West London to do my med degree I did like my house jobs um, back in 2009 uh, in in north central London so London was sort of like my playground I, I loved being in London and I couldn't imagine being anywhere outside the M25 if yeah. I was honest and so just a bit of context for listeners when you're applying for training jobs in medicine you could literally be posted anywhere anywhere like, Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> you, you As I say, I genuinely th- know someone that's been posted in the Isle of Man yeah. and just had to move there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you want to train in whatever your desired specialty is, you will have to move or be literally the best of the best and mm-hmm. then you get your chosen job. So I missed out on London very marginally because of my um, results from, my, from, from the exams and stuff. And I got my second choice, which was Brighton. Had no idea about Brighton, if I'm honest. I was just looking at the map and looking Want to be at by the, the sea. Easy, exactly. <laughs> and it was it was 55 minutes by train to Victoria. I thought I can come back to London the weekends, whatever. Um, and I was very, very close to not taking the job, actually. I'm so glad I did because Brighton really opened my eyes up to a world outside my London-centric view. Mm-hmm. And I, by the beach... You know, it was it was a much more relaxed atmosphere in the hospital, not from the you know quality of work, but from the alpha um, sort of personalities yeah. that I was used to in London. You know, every everything in medicine is very hierarchical, um, whereas especially in, in London, Brighton, it's so competitive. Definitely, very competitive. People doing publications and going to academic conferences, presenting it, doing all these things and jumping through hoops. And I was never of that. I just wanted to be a really good clinician. Mm -hmm. And I didn't grade my quality in what I was able to offer an individual or a team based on the number of publications I had about some weird and wonderful condition or, or whatever, new drug or whatever. So so Brighton for me was a real godsend. And I, again, I, I met some incredible people that I ended up living with in my second year. We had some incredible experiences. We'd play volleyball on the beach on oh. Wednesdays. We would go to, we would all go for like drinks and stuff at the end of the week with the consultants. It was that kind of atmosphere. Yeah. It was so foreign to me. I'd never had that before. I was like, what do you mean? I go out and, you know, have a pint with my consultant. He's my boss. So, you know, it was that, that atmosphere that I, I actually thrived in. And then at the end of my GP training, I uh, I had this opportunity. Well, some of my friends were talking about going to Australia, and I'd oh. never thought about going to Australia uh, and and practicing medicine. I was like, "Well, this is new." And it, I think it, again, it was because I was out of that London mindset. Whereas all my other friends in London were like consultant jobs, uh, like join follow a practice, the path, climb the ladder, exactly. do the things. Yeah, yeah, you go go and do the things that you're meant to do as a, as a London trained. 
uh, students. You know, you go into a practice, you earn a bunch of money, you acquire a new practice, or you, you know, acquire these new skills. There's always new exams to do. So the thought of like leaving, mm-hmm. you know, taking time out and going to Australia was never, never on the radar. And and I, I met some friends, and they were all going, and I got posted somewhere completely random from everyone. So I essentially went out there on my own. I managed to get a Sydney job. Oh, and my favorite that, place honestly, in the world. <laughs> yeah, it was for me, one of the best things that ever happened. And that for me was um, where I started the doctor's kitchen, because I had the idea brewing for years and years before, but I never really gained the confidence to get behind a camera and start talking about yeah. food as medicine. And it was my senior colleagues in Australia, or my consultants in A&E, who I told, and they were like, you got to do that. It sounds oh. awesome. I've got so many questions to ask you about this because it's, it's, but again, this is really one of those moments. So you, when, I mean, as you say, I know a lot of people that when you're from London, everything's about London, you're never going to move out, but you bring up so many brilliant points. When you did find out that you hadn't got into London, did you ever have a moment where you were like, I just, I just actually like, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, Mm, do you remember, do you remember the decision of kind of being like, actually that moment, like, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to take Brighton. And did anyone ever kind of question that for you because you were obviously around a lot of like the London um, yeah medical trainees it, it, it was actually um it was actually my dad so I, I I to answer that question I definitely had this thought of um packing it all in mm-hmm. and I was like well not not packing it all in I was like I'm gonna take a year out I'm gonna you know do something uh, like a, a what we call like a, a locum job um, for a year and then reapply and then go to London and I sat down with my dad and and he was like look I think you should just go for the training job and, and get it get it done and then make your decisions as to where you want to go because you've got an opportunity to, to do something, to, to follow a path and to get your qualification sorted. In three years, you, you know, you, you will have that qualification if you get your head down. Um, and it was that conversation that kept me, kept me going because mm-hmm. had I just gone on instinct... Um, and of that sort of visceral reaction to not getting a London post. And it sounds very fickle now, but for me at the time, it was sort of like built up in my head. Um, then I, I, I may not have gone. I may not have gone yeah. to Brighton and had all the other the subsequent events. Totally. But you know what? It's all relative. It's like, you know, if all your friends are getting married and you're not and you're on a different yeah. path, it's very hard, especially when you're younger. Um, mm. And I mean, listen, like I think... I always think about this as well. Like I wish I could have gone to my younger self. I'm a very ambitious person. I've always wanted to just keep going with my career and work up and work up. But I wish now I'd told my 25 year old self to go and live in Australia for two years. You know, you, (laughs) as you say, like looking back now, moving to Brighton at that age was the perfect time to do it. Like go and live and meet new people, experience new things. And I guess you talking about the fact you went to Australia. I mean, it's such, the environment there is just so doctor's kitchen and that type of thing. And ultimately from what you said, the doctor's kitchen would probably never have happened if you hadn't have gone to Australia. Yeah, because the first videos that I ever um, recorded were um, were in that little kitchen that I was sharing with two Aussie guys who, uh, again, again, are close mates of mine. They're like two surfer dudes um, with uh, professional jobs, as everyone is, actually. Everyone's a surfer dude yeah. in, in Manly, Australia. <laughs> um, and I was living just outside Manly as well. So I wasn't oh, in that Manly. sort of tourist bubble. That sort of freedom of like going on the beach. I mean, I'm really, really craving it now, obviously. No, don't. <laughs> I, I crave it all the time. <laughs> I haven't been for so long. But um, 
but yeah, no, I, that that experience for me was just uh, absolutely liberating. And I think anyone listening to this, regardless of when you're in your twenties or thirties, you should definitely give yourself that time, mm-hmm. if if financially possible, to 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 really take breaks. Um, and you, you know, there might be some people listening to this who are uh, perhaps about to go into university or are coming out of university who are a bit lost because of job opportunities and stuff. Just remember, there are a whole bunch of times where I felt pretty down and out, where I didn't know where my next move was. Yeah. And that's actually the most opportune moment. That right mm-hmm. there is the moment where you have no idea what the subsequent events are, but you just need to keep positive and again, go with that flow. And it's easier to say in retrospect, um, then, then practicing in, that in the moment. But if you can unlock that, you'd be really, really surprised at where it can take you. But you've had the experience; you've done it yourself, and especially in medicine and in you know professions like that, you don't get breaks. Like you, you know, once you once you're running, you keep going. Mm. And mm. you know, the fact that you've had like not only Brighton but going to Australia, these experiences, and again, it's it's just opened up your horizons and given you so much. I mean. It's great. And I would have loved to have gone to university in Brighton. It sounds like a very fun place to to have been. So your third moment. um, Now, this is probably what you're best known for, but it's actually really interesting to delve into because I wasn't aware of a lot of this. So choosing to try diet and lifestyle instead of undergoing surgery for your heart condition. So as I said before, you've spoken a lot about this. I think it's kind of the, the very premise of Doctor's Kitchen and kind of how you did you know medicate yourself through food um and I know that you kind of working as a trainee doctor and one day you just didn't feel right and you kind of had problems with your heart so do you want to explain kind of like when you found out about your heart condition and kind of what was what was wrong yeah yeah so um early on into my career as a junior doctor it was literally like three months in I um I was on a late shift I started having palpitations uh, and long story short, um, I was admitted as a patient on the ward that I was working in, a uh, medical assessment unit. And uh, it was because I'd flipped into something called atrial fibrillation, which is where your heart beats exceptionally fast. In my case, it was about 200 beats per minute. Um, and luckily, I didn't need to have one of those electrocardio versions that you see mm-hmm. on the American uh, hospital programs with the yeah. paddles on the chest and stuff. But I was observed overnight and was given some drugs to slow down the heart. And that was the first of what we're going to become two to three episodes per week of atrial fibrillation episodes lasting anywhere between 12 and 36 hours. And so in that moment, I became not only a, not only was I a newly qualified doctor, I was also a patient. Um, And I went through that journey of being a patient and seeing multiple different cardiologists, being offered different treatments, having investigations. And ultimately, what I was offered was something called an ablation, mm-hmm. which is where it sounds horrific. It's it's relatively safe, but it obviously still has some risks like death and stroke and, and infection and all the other things that can happen when you put a guide wire into someone's heart and then yeah. you burn an area around the pulmonary vein to stop these misfiring cells. And I was definitely going to go for this procedure because... I'd spoken to a whole bunch of seniors, spoken to my colleagues, got lots of advice. I was conventionally trained. That was the option for me. I was a good candidate, 24-year-old, yeah. no other medical issues. And it was my mum, who is not a medic. Uh, she's just uh, an, an, an Indian, uh, Ayurvedic, traditionally medicine-minded person who said to me, Food you know, you should... Soul. 
Exactly, yeah. She was literally like, you know, you need to think about your diet and your lifestyle before you, you entertain anything more drastic. And with, with the benefit of hindsight, I can totally rationalize with that perspective. You know, mm-hmm. do the simple things first before you do the drastic things. I mean, was your lifestyle and, and your kind of eating bad? No, I wouldn't say it was bad in the same way we think eating a meal deal for lunch, cereal for breakfast and a pasta for dinner is normal. Mm-hmm. And and that was my, my normal yeah. lifestyle. But, but you know, I think I've, I've looked at this um, in retrospect a lot. And I think my threshold for my condition or disease in general is a lot lower than most people. Mm-hmm. So for, for, for some people, that's completely fine. But for me, that was not. And compound that with poor sleep, new stresses of, of a junior doctor, you know, doing all the things that I was doing, that my colleagues were doing, compounding that with my, my diet and my lifestyle was not good for me. Yeah. And so correcting that was something that uh, my mum my was definitely a, a big fan of. So it, in all honesty, to appease her, you did it. I, said, I did it, and I and I spoke to my cardiologist, and with the, with their blessing, they said, "Look, all right, fine, just take the medications, and we'll see you in six months." But you're going to need to have this ablation, and so I took a very basic, back to basics approach. You know, out went the cereal, uh, in came Tupperware at lunchtime. Started meditating. Incremental changes, not something that I just you know magically did overnight. Yeah. It wasn't like I just turned into Rocky Balboa. You know, I was <laughs> up at five in the you morning exercise. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I worked at it. Um, you know, my I, I wasn't a smoker. I wasn't a heavy drinker. Obviously, I, we would go for drinks and stuff with other medics and stuff, but it wasn't like a, I had a problem. You know, never taken recreational drugs. No problems with my bloods. There weren't any electrolyte imbalances. It were all these different things that we looked at. And after about a year and a half of these incremental changes to the point where I'm eating nuts and seeds, lots of plants, mm-hmm. lots of greens, meditating, optimizing sleep. My AF episodes went from two to three per week to zero. Oh my god! And they haven't come back since. And wow. so for me and my anecdotal experience, that was like, that was the start of what became the doctor's kitchen, but it was really to answer two questions. It was A, how on earth is this possible? And B, why wasn't I taught this at medical school? Mm-hmm. And everything I've done since then, since making that that decision, that, that sliding doors moment, if you like, um, was is really sort of the catalyst behind what I do today. Um, and that's why I started the nonprofit culinary medicine to optimize yeah. nutrition training amongst other medics. So I'm not the only one talking about this. And the doctor's kitchen is really to empower as many people as possible to really look after their lifestyle because it is so, so impactful uh, as per my own experience, but a lot of the evidence is pointing in that direction yeah. too. How incredible. Um, what was what was your doctor's reaction when he kind of <laughs> seen all the things? I mean, obviously they were like, you know, yeah, he can do what he wants to do. Come back in six months, he'll have to have it. But then after that year and a half, what, what did they kind of want to start looking into it more? Were they kind of as, as shocked and surprised as you were? So in all honesty... It was really underwhelming. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I didn't actually have the confidence initially to tell them that I'd made these diet and lifestyle changes that wow. had led to this. Yeah. yeah. Because in, 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 you've got to think like back then I was a, 
a fresh-faced junior yeah. doctor who didn't know any better. And there was still, even though I was the patient under their care, there was still that sort of hierarchy like, this is what I recommend and this is what you should be doing. So the very fact that I declined an ablation in the first place was always something that irked them. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, for me to go back and say, whoa, I've done this and I've just increased my plants and, you know, and I've, <laughs> I've fixed it, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't obviously go in with that attitude, but I was quite careful about how I phrased it. Um, and, and even to this day, it's kind of like th there is a culture around medicine of spontaneous remission. And it's something mm -hmm. I've discussed actually with um, a, a psychiatrist who trained at Harvard called Dr. Jeffrey Redinger, who studied spontaneous remissions in detail over the last 20 years and has found common threads, nutrition, sense of purpose, faith, a whole bunch of things that we look at as woo-woo in the medical field, yeah. but we don't talk about enough. Mm -hmm. And I was just another case of spontaneous remission. It was just one of those things, one of those anomalies in medicine that doesn't really make sense and we can't explain. And unfortunately, that is still the attitude that we are dealing with in medicine, but it is changing. And I, hopefully I can be one of the the few voices that are pushing towards definitely that. and listen if you can help at least like you know 10 people become mm. better like and you know it's not going to work for everyone as you said but it worked for you and I guess do you ever think about how different your life would have been if you had just you know had the surgery off the bat yeah I probably I probably would have gone into surgery because I was interested in surgery at the time um, I might have even gone into cardiothoracic surgery, or even though it's very, very, uh, very, very competitive, I might not have been clever enough. Um, but I definitely wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing today, that's for sure. Um, yeah. And it's, it's quite interesting because the things that got me into medicine in the first place, i.e. my mum's experience, uh, and I, I, I should have mentioned actually, my mum really took a diet and lifestyle approach herself mm -hmm. to rid herself of her own condition. And that again was sort of another reason as to why I was quite- Intrigued you. Intrigued, yeah. exactly, in, into going to medicine. Um, so it's kind of like I had to go through my own experience to reinvigorate what led me to going into the profession itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I, I look back on that and I'm super grateful that that actually happened, even though at the time, very frustrating why can't yeah. i just be like my other friends why can't why can't i go and play tennis and in the middle of a tennis match like you know i flip into af you know it, it was very debilitating um obviously it wasn't like i had a physical deb uh, uh, disability but it's still like mentally very very limiting because mm -hmm. you know i i it was unfair. It, I was 24. I wasn't doing anything particularly different. So why did I have to have a heart condition? It was, it, it was, yeah, it, it, it was um, a bit of a mental strain as well, but yeah. I, I'm glad it's happened now. Yeah. And it's probably been something that's really kind of helped with your whole gratitude, because as you say, when you've been through something that has stopped you from doing the things you want to do, made you not normal as such, like mm. you appreciate things so, so much more. Massively, massively. Yeah. And I think, you know, gratitude is like the gateway drug to being more present and in the moment. And when I look back on that, you know, it would have been very hard for me to say to myself, I'm grateful for this. But mm -hmm. had I practiced that a bit more, perhaps, you know, things would have been a bit different, it would have been easier, who knows. Um, yeah. But I know now whenever I'm going through things like the pandemic, for example, um, the fact that I can't see my, my family and all that kind of stuff, I try and think about the perspective of gratitude. What is this teaching me today? Mm -hmm. What is my 
you know, um, natural inclination to be upset and down. What is that teaching me today? And it's okay. It's not like you have to bottle up depression or emotions or anything, but you, you have to open up to them and communicate with them and mm -hmm. ask the question to yourself, what is this teaching you today? Definitely. It's such a great theory. Um, and so out of all the three moments we've discussed, so I mean, it's really hard because they've all led you to where you are today and they've been brilliant moments. Um, what would you say for you is the best one that kind of, if it hadn't have happened, like life would have just been so, so different? Mm, yeah, it's really hard to quantify a hierarchy of sliding doors moments because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm of the school of thinking that, you know, the very fact that we're choosing to have this podcast conversation today is having an impact on the rest of my life. There's no Yeah, everything. Point. Yeah. Yeah. There's literally no point in your present moment that isn't going to be having a huge impact on you, the rest of your life, the, the ramifications of deciding to have a conversation, deciding what to eat, getting up in the morning, you know, where are you going to walk, who you're going to interact with is ripe with opportunity. So for me, it's, you know, I, I might gravitate towards Australia because that's where I started the doctor's kitchen or, you know, my ultimate choice to choose to have um, a diet and lifestyle approach rather than surgery or where I choose to train and that kind of stuff. But actually, you know, it's, it's the minutiae of decisions. And that's why I think it's a really, really good thing to be grateful, to be present, to go with the flow and to meditate in the mornings. <laughs> so well said and what a brilliant way to think of everything. Um, Rupi, it's been so great to chat to you. And as I said, I really hope that this conversation inspires like anyone, but also like, you know, people in the medical profession. And it's it's been brilliant to talk about all those key bits of your journey have led you to where you are today. Um, Best of luck with the TV show. We can't wait to watch it. Um, and I will continue to cook along with you with your brilliant cookbook. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jenny. No, that's great. And thanks for the opportunity to take some time out and reflect. It's something uh, I think we all need to do more of. We definitely do. Thank you, Rupee. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.